When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my name's Jess Phillips, and this is yours sincerely. I've always been a prolific letter writer, both the good and bad kind, and know the power of putting words to paper. So in this podcast, I want to give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. And when we've heard more about each person, they'll reveal how they would sign off each letter. Gina Miller is an entrepreneur, author and activist. In 2016, she initiated and won a court case against the British government over its authority to implement Brexit without parliamentary approval. Since then, she has gone on to found the True and Fair Foundation and released the memoir Rise, Life Lessons in Speaking Out, Standing Tall and Leading the Way. Today, I'm excited to talk to her about the letters she would send to three people who mean the world to her. So, hello, Gina. How are you? A little tired. Like we're everybody, we're all a bit, uh, I think, juggling too much. Yeah. And also the world is just throwing so many difficult things at humankind at the moment that it just feels like everything is tiring. It's just everything we thought we knew and took for granted isn't there anymore. And it's like every day I expect to wake up and I'm now almost, I have to stop myself being prepared for really bad news every day and try and find some joy. Sometimes it's, again, we're being almost programmed to look at the negative all the time. And I think we have to stop ourselves and just take the moment to just enjoy the things that are wonderful because it just fills us back up again. Because I think at the moment, every day we're being emptied of our emotions, of our soul, of our intellect. You know, everything is just so heavy. So I think we take it wherever we can. Yeah, let's 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 take it. So are you much of a letter writer? Now, I know that you are a prolific letter writer to the Supreme Court. Um, (laughs) But um, the only time I've ever written a letter to the Supreme Court was to intervene in a case that you were intervening in. You inspired me to write a letter to the Supreme Court. I am a letter writer, actually, and I try now to still write thank you cards and letters because I just think there's something lovely about holding it physically in your hand rather than just having it sort of in hand. So I do try wherever I can to send a physical letter or a thank you note. I still do that. Yeah, that's good. I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> I still do that as well. Although lots of people, to dying art, they're just leaving voice notes for each other on their phones, which I feel is not the same and not as good. Do you have any particular letters of note 
letters that you keep that you're really proud of or hilarious letters? <laughs> I've had two during the court cases, actually, that are on my wall, actually, in the office. Uh, one was a little girl who was 10 who wrote to me and said her mum had just read my book, Rise, and was a survivor of domestic violence and read my book and said she was never going to feel sorry for herself again. And so the little girl, the 10-year-old, said, my mum stops crying now. And I was just, oh, that was just so extraordinary. And talking about men, the second one I have in my wall is actually from a father who said to me that he hadn't really spent that much time with his three girls because he thought as a father, it was up to his wife to bring up and do the mothering, the parenting, and the girls wouldn't really need him. But he'd heard me talk about my father and how much my father influenced me. And he was going to do more parenting. And I thought, again, that was just so special. And so you have those letters on your wall? Yeah, I do. How lovely. Because it just reminds me they're lovely people out there. Um, Sometimes I do need that. So, yeah, no, no, I do have those too. Do you have any letters from like angry politicians telling you to stop it? Oh, I had so many angry letters um, (laughs) that I just decided I'd stop reading them. Actually, I didn't know this, but one of my assistants, because uh, I lost an assistant who couldn't cope with the abuse, unfortunately, she sort of found it too much, really. And the gatekeepers sometimes do, and I'm sure you know that. And so for her own mental health, she left. But I had another one who is a real old battle axe, ex-army, and she decided to keep them in a file. And one day she showed me this massive black arch folder. And she said, she said, this is for us to keep and burn whenever we're cold. And so she, <laughs> and she, she literally, so, I mean, I, I tried to dip in and out of it and I just couldn't, it was such filth and you know, it. it's, it's just so much, but, but there was one letter that terrified me and I did read and she thought I needed to see, which was a letter through all the abuse where they'd written that they knew where my children went to school and that my children were going to be taken and killed. And I didn't know if that was true because no, you don't, know, you, you do you? don't. You're not to know. You're not to know. So I, I had that letter and I remember just shaking and I couldn't speak. And I just phoned the police and we got in the car and we went to get the kids. And I came home and just held them for the rest of the day. But that letter was more terrifying than any of the other beers because I just didn't know if it was true. Yeah, that's it. The thing is, is, I mean, I think it's actually quite rare that people who threaten things then go on to perpetrate them. Uh, it tends to be people who haven't threatened in the public eye, obviously, yes, yes, domestic abuse settings that obviously the threats are constant. But in the public eye, it tends not to work that way. But you just don't know. You have no idea about that. And you can't take the chance. (laughs) I mean, you know, and these days with technology, and I kept thinking, and I remember sitting at home holding them thinking, had I posted a photograph by accident that had a tag or a location? Had somebody seen me? I mean, all these thoughts go through your mind. their school uniforms and things like the badges or... And they, yeah, and everything. And so, you know, had, yeah, had, had I stopped her because I'd stopped them being, I didn't, I withdrew all permission for them being photographed and all that sort of stuff. But it's just that, you know, it's, you just don't know. That was terrifying. That was a because it also then went into great detail of how they would die, and I think that was just somebody so macabre and dark that yeah, it was ter- it was really really frightening. Yeah, did you have some people sent to prison for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. great. <laughs> uh, two of them, and the law changed, which was good. <laughs> yeah, that is. Uh, I mean, 
It's funny, isn't it? Like people sort of, it must be shocking to hear people like you and I talking because we almost wear it so lightly only because there is an element of getting used to it, which is terrible. And I hate to admit that, but it is true. I'm exactly the same. I sort of shrug it off now. And I, I sort of, I always say the opposite is I say, if I don't get an abuse one day, I think, my gosh, what's wrong? I know I'm not doing my job <laughs> properly. I know. I will have to try and work really hard to not think it's normal. Yeah. I know it's horrible that, isn't it? Like sometimes it will hit me and I just think, oh my God, this is awful. I just read a book um, called Reputation that I I spoke to the author, Sarah Vaughan, who wrote it and she wrote Anatomy of a Scandal, which is about to be on the television. And this book is about a member of parliament, a Labour member of parliament who gets a lot of abuse and what it does to her psyche. And I, when I was reading it, Normally I read like, you know, so that to like take my mind off things and it's like that. Oh, my God, I'm not going to sleep tonight. And I was reading it and actually I thought, God, it it does actually affect me. In reality, it does actually affect me. But you on, on good days, you just learn to cope with it, don't you? You know, you just get on with it. I had the weirdest experience recently because, and it didn't realize, and I didn't realize it, but um, somebody has been daft enough to write a play about me and Mrs. May called Bloody Difficult Women. And I went to see it and I hadn't realized, and what I'm going to say sounds daft, I hadn't realized how much abuse I'd got until I saw somebody else playing me reacting to it in, on a stage. Well, that's exactly what this book is like for me. I was like that, What? Oh, my God, this is awful. Yeah. It is. It's strange. It's, it's like we sort of we push it behind, we get on with it because we have to, if you know, and focus on what it is we're trying to say and do and achieve. It sort of washes off. But I found it a really, really emotional and difficult thing to watch myself being abused, even though I was the one going through it. It was just such a strange experience. That is weird. But you have to yeah, you you have to not sit outside yourself and see other people as they see you when you're living it, because otherwise you'd never bloody care. You, I'm much more scared for my children than I am for myself. It's like that, you know, and that's because I'm watching things that happen to them. Whereas you're not, it's not the same when it's happening to you. You just learn to, people are amazing at what they can cope with. Absolutely phenomenal. Especially because, you know, obviously through the points of your activism and certainly mine you know joe was murdered in the street so it's not without very brutal reminders that it's very real it is very real and that's the thing i think one of the things i think from you and i speaking out and women like us is that um some of those people who would say those things in the past it would be sort of the extremes of society and because of the way things have shifted and the, con- and the national conversation and the way we debate and the way we treat each other's change it's become more mainstream and in a way I worry about us actually accepting it too much and thinking oh it's normal because in a way we're condoning the fact that it's moved to being an everyday central part of our conversation so I'm quite often I, I'll sit and quietly reflect as to if it is the right thing actually to do to accept it or should I be more angry should I ignore it should I not respond it's really difficult to know Exactly how there's no right and wrong. And I don't I, I, I question quite often if I'm reacting the right way. I, I agree. And I used to like fight back in every case and then I'd like laugh and joke. And then I'd say it was and often we, we, like I do, you will be asked, like, how do you cope with it? And the answer is always different. And I'm not sure I'm doing a good job. I'm not certain that my reaction is always a helpful one for the future. Um, sometimes I think if I talk about it too much, like is that putting off? 
people who might want to step forward. And- well, fun, funny enough. So yesterday I had the great pleasure of um, universities and now doing graduations in person. So I did a graduation ceremony yesterday and it was so lovely to see, you know, parents, you know, whooping and hollering to their kids who are first generation who've gone to university and are graduating. So it was so wonderful to see the family's reaction. But then I had a group of sort of four or five girls around me saying, you know, we're really worried about what we're going to go into because of what's happened to you. And I think and I stood there and thought, mm, is it right that I'm talking about what's happening to me? Because it's making them think, well, do they want to? So I was really aware of it. And I said to them, actually, your generation has got, are going to have to be braver and more courageous than us because I'm only learning. <laughs> I'm only learning. And you're the ones who can do it. are going to be able to do it so much better. So hopefully. I think it's OK for us to admit that we don't always know the right answer, though. I think that that's okay as well. We, we're not perfect. We don't know the right, all the answers. So on to your perfect people. Um, <laughs> and they better all be absolutely bloody perfect. Um, so I've asked you to think of three people who you might write letters to. And the first one is the person who means the world to you. So who would that be? That would be my eldest daughter. So she's going to be 34 soon. All right, can I just, I'm going to stop you there and say that is shocking that you have a 34 <laughs> year old daughter. You've told me this before, and every single time it seems unbelievable that you have a 34 year old daughter. But okay, I'll, I'll believe you. How old were you when you had her? You must have been about five. 25. No, 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 not quite. But um, no, but she, she, so she was starved of oxygen, and so her mental age is um, five or six. But she has the most extraordinary emotional intelligence. She can read people like nobody else I know. And she has this ability to cut through the black and white. She, she isn't socialized like us. So she'll tell you straight on if you're right, if you're wrong, if you look awful, if you don't suit the clothes, if you put weight on, if you're being mean, you know, she'll just come straight out. And so I just watch her and think, God, we just need to be like that more often. <laughs> she just, but then she also always knows when somebody needs a hug or judges your mute, your mute, she is able to use a sense. I think it's going back to Darwinian uh, way that she reacts to people. And I wonder if that's because of her special needs, because she's not using the same part of the brain that we are, that she uses another part, but she just has such empathy. I mean, and she's off the scale clever. I mean, she's the wisest. It's not clever in our sense, but she's one of the wisest people I know. So my letter would be to her to tell her, Thank you for reminding me every day what courage and strength is and what compassion is because, it, you know, she's been bullied, she's been burnt at school, she's been kicked because she has no physical disabilities. She says, you know, you remember the Olympics, the Paralympics, and everyone was so happy of that Super Saturday or whatever it was in London where we had the Olympics. And she was taken by my brother and sister-in-law and she came back and I said, don't you think that was wonderful? Because we were watching it on TV. And she said, no. She said, I don't think they're that great. And I was like, why? She said, because everyone makes clapping about their disabilities they can see, but nobody can see mine. And I thought, yes, nobody's clapping you for what you've done. Because, and that was the thing about having, you know, you know being in the sense centrum, uh, you know, not being able to see the disability is a really tough thing because you don't know and you judge people very differently and people don't give her the time of day. You know, they don't allow her to be slow when she's trying to pay for something or get on a bus or when she's getting lost or whatever. And so it's a really tough thing for her, but she literally gets up every single day with a smile. She's the happiest person I know. And so she somehow manages to overcome all the things she's had to combat for all these years. 
And being the parent of a child with special needs, obviously, it's one of the things I come across most in my job is people not being able to get the correct services or access to special education. And it just feels like parents, when their children certainly are at school age, and then the transition to adulthood actually seems to be the worst bit, that you will not succeed in getting anything, even the basics, unless you fight at every single Every single juncture, you are, nothing is handed to you on a plate. Every single thing you have to fight for. It's every day. Every day is a battle. And I mean, the thing is that um, I thought, because it's actually where I started campaigning, was to get statements mainstream. You know, so my first bit of activism and campaigning was in the 1996 um, Education Act to put in the special needs part. And you're absolutely right, because people don't see the child in an adult body. They just see the adult. And suddenly everything falls away. And there's no support. And now there's no respite. There's, you know, parents 24-7, especially, I mean, I'm lucky in a way that I've got a daughter, not a son. But to have a boy who then is this little boy in a man's body who has a physical strength to hit out at whoever the carer is and have no respite and have nowhere to go and be picked on by the police or picked up and put in to and locked up overnight when literally, as I say, it's that little boy inside really who, because you might have not responded correctly to the police or didn't understand what someone said on the on the uh, troops train or on, you know, the, the our society doesn't understand different abilities at all. We actually close down and we condemn everyone who's different and we don't understand. And that's something that is so hard. And I, I you know, one of the things like language is such a powerful, powerful tool. And if we could start talking about finding that different ability rather than the disability, because most people with special needs, most young adults, they are fantastic at art, at caring, at their food. They all love, for some reason, food is a great big thing. You know, if we could only find the way for them to contribute to society, it wouldn't be a burden. And that's the thing we haven't understood is finding out how they can be part of the fabric of the world we live in. Yeah, and I, I, it does seem to me that, you know, there is without question a line between you having to fight for your daughter and then becoming basically, you know, the world's greatest difficult woman. Um, <laughs> and when you were, you know, sort of intervening in all the court cases around uh, the different votes and things that we were having, you know, the, the sort of steely resolve of somebody who's not afraid of a fight was very, very clear. And I imagine that that was just years of training from trying to get anything for your daughter. It was from my daughter, it was from being a survivor of domestic violence. And I say it took, when people say, oh, you popped up from nowhere, I, I often say, well, no, it took me 30 years to pop up from nowhere. <laughs> it doesn't just happen overnight. And I think, you know, a lot of the people who were, you know, I'd walk out the court case. There was one particular time I walked out and there was somebody who, the police left who had um, a gallows, who was just standing there with a gallow and shouting and screaming that I should be hung. And the police on the other side were not wanting to intervene. And I remember thinking, if they only know that the person I loved most in the world thought the best thing would be if I died and he would be the one killing me, they had no idea who I was. And so they're not going to hurt me. And I think that's the thing is that, um, you know, I might be broke. I am still broken. You know, the things that happen that are tough in your life don't mean that you're mended. You always have cracks. You're always, in a way, dysfunctional, in a way, but then you recover and you find a different way of surviving. 
And that gives you a strength, which means that you are able to stand up and you are able to do things that perhaps if you hadn't gone through that experience, you wouldn't be able to do. And I'm aware of that. That's why I'm quite happy to stand up and fight for other people like you are. Because when we've been through an experience where we've had to survive and we've had no choice, then you just come out of it learning as something in all that dismay and tragedy, there is a seed that comes out, that, that grows in you, that shows you there is something about you. And it gives you a really different sense of yourself. And it's not something that makes you angry. I always, always try not to be angry because I think anger is such a waste of an emotion. It's just a, it's tiring. It's tiring. And I also try not to be vengeful or to hold on to hate because, again, it's, it sort of eats you up from inside and the only person who's really hurting is you and the other person expelling the hate is one then if you're the one suffering. Drinking poison and expecting it to kill someone else. And I, so I'm really trying, and that's difficult today. Some days it is, yeah. some, it's difficult. Some days I'm totally inspired by spite. <laughs> and, you know, and, and, you know, I'll scream in a pillow or whatever it is, but I try hard not to do that because it is something. And, and whatever your tragedy is, when you survive it, if you can overcome it and come out the other side, you are, I think, a better person. And it's almost a revenge on the person who tried to keep you down or destroy you that you come out better. Absolutely. I mean, you, your various experiences will have made you into the woman that you are. What is your daughter's name? Lucianne, which means sunshine. <laughs> sunshine. And have you felt that over the years? Have you felt judged about your daughter? Have you felt like people either or, or pity or... No, I remember when I went back to university when she was five or six, I got, I mean, people judged me and sort of said, because I used to take her with me to the evening lectures because I was a mature student. And people would tell me, often, why are you not home with her? How can you be working? You should be at home looking after her. So it was a lot of, as a single mom, there was a lot of, you shouldn't be doing your career. You shouldn't be doing this. You're neglecting her. There was a lot of that. And yeah, it was funny because I thought people would be supportive and there weren't a lot of them that were. It was this idea that I was being a bad mother. God, that's dreadful. People are idiots. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, there are lots of lovely people in the world there who write nice, lo lots of lovely letters. But it, will she be able to live independently? And So I finally got her into assisted accommodation independently the week before the first lockdown. It had taken me two and a half, nearly three years. And I had to sort of talk to her about it and explain to her that, you know, and she was so happy. She'd understood and she was so happy. And then lockdown happened and I told her she couldn't go. She had to stay with us and she became really, really angry. And she took it out physically on the younger two. And she was just uncontrollable with anger because I spent such a long time preparing her for it. And then she couldn't understand. And she thought she'd done something wrong. It would have been so much worse if she'd gone and then you'd not been able to see her. Well, that's the thing. I kept thinking, thank God she didn't go because I wouldn't have seen I wouldn't have seen her. But also during that period, I kept thinking, because I was also being contacted by lots of people about the do not resuscitate orders that, you know, started, you know, if someone like her, if she had gotten ill and she had gone into a hospital and had there was a do not resuscitate order, I would have never seen her again. And that played through my mind so many times. So I just was glad that she was home and we could cope with her here. But that was tough. I was you know, it was tough because she was so disruptive, but at the same time, it was better that she was here. Yeah, just, I mean, it would have been awful. So she finally went in last July. 
And does she like it? Is she living it? She loves it. She lives with um, a young man who's blind and another girl who's like her, who's 23. And the three of them, like an old people's home. Honestly, they get in their dressing gowns together and they watch EastEnders and they love and giggle and they watch Disney. They honestly are the funniest household. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it must be a real worry. Although I suppose you had her when you were quite young, but it must just be a real worry about, you know, the sort of when you're not here anymore. I mean, it's a worry about any of your children, to be honest. (laughs) So when I was going through, when the abuse was at the most, that's when I wrote my most letters. So I started writing letters to them. And I, because they're very different, they needed very different letters. And I started writing letters to my husband about how to look after them, how to be a dad and how to turn on ovens and cook. And I suddenly realized I was writing a manual, not a letter to him. Because <laughs> the more I wrote, the more I thought, oh, no, he doesn't know that. He doesn't know that. And so literally, I, so during that period, I wrote a lot of letters. Because you thought you would die. Yeah. So I wrote them letters about their 16th birthday, their 18th birthday, how much I loved them. And for her, I wrote little letters and drawings. So for her, as I drew in a lot of them and got pictures and put them of when we were together, when we were young and when she was young and pasted. So I did a little scrapbook in the end for her, not a letter. But no, it, it, I look back now and I think that was a crazy thing to do, but I just felt so unsafe that I had to write them letters. Most of the women who I have ever known who have nearly been murdered or sadly, have gone on to be murdered, all knew they were going to be murdered. There there is this sense that this could happen. And I don't think that people realise that from looking outside of domestic violence and abuse, because when people say, well, why don't you leave? And it's because women don't leave because the threat to kill you if you leave is very real. And most women who are killed are killed because they left it's very difficult. For, it was difficult for me because my friends and family didn't want me to talk about it because they felt it would really hurt my career and hurt, hurt me because there's these myths, and I'm afraid it's still a myth out there, that it's weak women who suffer from domestic violence or coercive behaviour and that it's weak, silly women and why don't you leave and all those stereotypes, and it's not true. Sometimes strong women attract men who want to break you and it's a thing that actually attracts them. It's a challenge and and they set about. So from day one, they're loving and caring. And the minute you're actually either moved in or married or whatever, then it starts and it becomes almost like their project to own you and break you and control you. And that that, um, idea that you, I mean, I used to get told uh, that I was a bad horse and I needed to be broken. And, and, you know, I was all there were loads of references about me being an animal or a monkey that needed to be tamed, all these sorts of things. And it gets to the stage that when it's every day, somebody doing that every single day, you wake up and you have no idea who you are anymore. And I went through, I'd say a couple of years, like most women do, where I have no idea who I was and I didn't have the emotional strength. So it's not the physical strength to get up and leave is you have no mental or emotional strength to even, well, you, you can't even function. The coercive bit, in a way, is even worse than the physical bit because, you know, my diaries would be changed, my appointments would be changed. He'd tell things, told my friends that I hated them. My family would be told messages of things I didn't do. I mean, the whole thing, your whole world gets controlled and you don't realize that that's happening. And so, you know, people look at you differently. You lose people around you. You're isolated. That's such a common thing to be isolated. 
And then I discovered that he'd forged my signature and changed all my access to money. So I didn't have any access. I couldn't leave. So, you know, when I did eventually leave, I lived with Lucianne in a car for three weeks because I didn't know where else to go. I just needed to get out. And so, you know, I wanted to talk about these things because I want to break that myth that successful women don't suffer because men and women um, all walks of society, domestic violence, coercive behavior affects everyone, anyone, anywhere can be a victim. And that's a really big message that I wanted to talk about. And do you feel that Lucianne means the world to you because she was there with you in that car? She was your sidekick? No, 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 no. Just honestly, she is the one who saved me because she, when I looked at her and I knew I had to stay alive to look after her. And I knew she needed me because at that time she was, you know, this is 16 years ago. She was a lot younger and I knew I had to stay alive for her. There's so many days I just wanted to die. So she saved me. And I will always, again, be grateful for her for that. Because if it wasn't for her, I don't think I would have. Do you think she knows that? Oh, yes, she knows that. (laughs) She tells me. She tells me sometimes because it's funny because she doesn't remember things. Her long term memory is not great, but she remembers emotional things. And every so often when we're talking, she'll say, Mummy, remember when we were in the car and I used to listen to your heartbeat with my head on your lap when we went to sleep at night? Because she used to tell me she could hear my heart because she was scared of loud noises and things. She used to like really bury her head in me and in my jumper and stuff. And so she'll, she'll tell me, I remember your heartbeat. And I say to her, yes, and you made that heartbeat carry on. And so, we, yeah, she does remember. Oh, so how would you sign off a letter to the lovely Lucianne, who sounds a delight? She's, I would just say that every day she reminds me what real courage is. Oh. She sounds brilliant. I'm glad. Oh, she is hilarious. She's also got the wickedest sense of (laughs) humour. So the second letter that I asked you to think about, the second person, is somebody who's no longer with us. So who would that person be? That would be my father, my wonderful father. I mean, he was an extraordinary lawyer and, and social justice campaigner. He took the time from when I was four, five, six. He'd come home and I had really long hair that I'd sit on. And we had a white bench outside and he'd come home and we'd sit on the bench and he'd brush my hair and tell me about uh, what he'd done that day in terms that I could understand. And he talked to me about the law and about justice and about politics being about it was personal. It was about people's pain. He, he made me understand from a very young age about how important it was to do the things he was doing and why he was an activist. And so I grew up at the knees of an extraordinary man. And the thing is, he died before I took any of my court cases or anything like that. And one of the, again, a lovely letter I got is from somebody who worked with him, who now lives in Canada. And my dad's um, nickname was Dudes. Um, And he just sent me this letter going, Dudes would be so proud of you. And I, I mean, that, was, that made up for all, all the, in a way, the negativity and everything else to receive that letter. Because uh, when I started now, my, my new political party, my, my brother said to me, oh, dad didn't quite get as far as you. You see, you, you've trumped him now. <laughs> so he, he, was, he was a very interesting man because he also had such reverence in a Commonwealth country. He had such reverence for Britain and British values and Britain's place in the world. And he, I think a lot of people in the Commonwealth did in his generation. Where's he from, your dad? He was British Guiana. So he then became British. So he used to make us listen to the BBC World Service every night. 
And, you know, he would tell us about when he was in Cambridge and he'd talk about Dickens and he was just, he filled us with, because we didn't have TV. So we had, he'd fill us with Britain, really. Somebody told me the other day, he said, what's so weird about you, Gina, is that you actually, your view of Britain and, you know, how brilliant it is, is almost like a Brexiteer. And I thought, <laughs> okay, that's now going, <laughs> it's quite weird. They said we're on the sort of same side of the same coin, but uh, yeah, because. Patriot. Yeah, I'm a patriot. Yeah, and I know. Absolutely. And I do absolutely believe. And that's why, you know, I say it makes me sad is that, you know, I don't want us to lose our place in the world. I don't want us to lose the fact that our soft power has kept us at the forefront of human rights and, you know, conflict around the world and resolution of conflicts. When I look back now, I think I can't figure out, Jess, how he managed to tell me such complex things when I was a little girl in a way that I understood it. He had an ability to storytell in a way that I understood, which I, I'm not quite sure how he managed to do it because the next time he'd be talking in a court and, you know, when he left Parliament in Guyana, his speech he made in Parliament about the fact that it shouldn't be a fish market, it shouldn't be adversarial, that they were discussing people's lives and they should understand the responsibility. Someone sent me his speech. I mean, recently I'd forgotten about it. What an extraordinary speech it was when he left Parliament. And... Um, I read it and I thought, this is such complex things. How on earth did this same man who wrote this actually speak to me at five, six years old and got me to understand? It is quite an extraordinary talent. The greatest political gift a person can have is the ability to simply tell a story. Unfortunately, it's the easiest story to tell is one of hate. And unfortunately, too many people fall into that. It's much, much harder to spin a story of hope it's much more powerful, though, but it is much harder. It is much, much harder. It's a lazy coward's way out to do hate. But it is simple. Quick bang, like bullets, it's effective. But it is lazy, and it's for the stupid people, in my view. When did your dad die? 2013. So he had no idea about any of it. Any of it. <laughs> no. no. It's funny you should say that. So my mum died in 2011. Yeah, just after the coalition government, yeah. I remember her being like, oh, gosh, this is confusing That when we had a coalition government. But, uh, yeah, so she died in 2011 and I was selected to run for parliament in about 2013. And I definitely put down the throwing yourself into work and the things that my mum cared about after she died with the fact that I got elected at all. Would you say the same for you? Like the loss of my mum made me really like hyper, both to sort of put the grief aside and focus on something else, but also just really, really like, you know, let's do the things that she loved and cared about and mattered to her. Yeah, because, I mean, for me, I'd, I'd started campaigning a long time ago and I've done stuff on Monday slavery. And I was, you know, after the financial crisis, I was campaigning. My main campaigning focus was on the city, on financial services and all the, you know, terrible, dubious behaviours and the ripoffs happening there. But when my father died and I'd been over to see him a few months earlier, I connected back with him. I hadn't seen him for a while because his life, you know, our lives get get busy and we live in different countries and he reminded me. So it's true. He did remind me of actually the things I really cared about more than my job, actually, more than my professional life. He definitely reasserted in me my priorities and the fact that I really cared about my democracy and that, the, you know, social justice was more important than my job. So and I, in an odd way, 
maybe if I hadn't gone and seen him, I would have sort of drifted for a while and maybe drifted back into it, but drifted. But I didn't drift any longer. I was much more determined. I think that losing somebody who reminds you of the thing, the, your eyes on the prize, it's very crystallising, I think. And you might not think of it like that. It's not conscious at the time. You can only look at it in with hindsight and say, oh, actually, maybe I did really throw myself into that because of her and because of being sad or, or whatever it was. But it, it's not necessarily conscious at the time. It's just... I don't think it is. It's a process, isn't it? You, it's a process of reflection and, and they make you think again. And, and death does that anyway. It makes you reflect on life and what's important in life. Yeah. And uh, he, w- he would have been, I have no doubt, in saying this, <laughs> incredibly proud of you. Because like loads of people in the country were incredibly proud of you. My mate Joe, he used to text me and just be like, I love you, Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> like that. I'll tell him. I'll pass oh, it on. Bless him. Or her, whichever. Joe could be male or female. <laughs> Joe is a, is a boy. But yeah, he. Oh, uh, that's he, so lovely. Yeah, he was like, oh my God, I love her. And he'd send me like <laughs> memes of you, like looking like one of the Avengers. Oh, funny enough. I actually, I'll tell you this something else I got, which wasn't a letter, it was a picture. It was um, somebody had, who read that I'm also a complete case when it comes to, to Marvel comic books. I'm a real Marvel fan. So they made me my own superhero emblem for my, oh supposed, my, my supposed outfit. So it was quite funny. There you go. That's brilliant. <laughs> Love stuff like that. So, you know, there is more nice people in the world. We all must, must remember that. So how would you sign off a letter to your lovely dad? Um, I'd probably say thank you, Dad, for giving me the strength to believe in myself and to raise my voice. Yeah, it's really, really important that people are told to raise their voices because most people spend most of their lives being told to be quiet. (laughs) Yes. Well, no, 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 especially women. You know, I think we spend a lot of people tell us, no, I call it dim your light, turn it down. We're always being told to dim our light. Yeah, turn it down. <laughs> I mean, Tory MPs, literally, when when I'm, like, being rowdy in the chamber, they will literally be like, shh, and, like, like I'm a child. I'm like that. Don't fucking shush me. Oh, no, no, no. That must rile you even more. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm like that. Don't you fucking dare. <laughs> I, 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 I repeatedly shout things like, you're not my dad. <laughs> um, my dad would never try and do that, but um, but yeah, it's uh, there. There, I, I find that really, really strange. This idea that um, the the child thing, and I got asked this the other day in International Women's Week when I was doing an event, and uh, they were saying to me, "Well, you know, do you find do you get ever get treated like a child?" I said, "Yeah, all the time. It's like I don't know where to sit, where to what happens. You know, I'll be." They're, they're patron, the patronising tone of telling me what to do is coming. And I look at them, I go, I've done this before. It's okay. You know, shall I tell you where to go and sit? It is so patronising. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, the level of patronising that I, I suffer in my, it's just sort of like, yeah, I know. And you don't, but then we're told not to like, so, you know, you're sort of meant to sort of just demure and smile like and say thank you. And I'm just like... Do one with your paternalism. Um, <laughs> but it is very, that is so annoying. Ministers often do that, say, well, you know, there is no silver bullet. And I just think, I don't think there's a silver bullet. I just want you to do something. Something, yeah. We'll be back for Gina's final letter after a short break. In the meantime, why not check out another podcast from the team behind yours sincerely? 
<laughs> I'm here to tell you about our brand new podcast, Go Love Yourself. It's the show where we're working to love ourselves a little bit more. Yay! I'm Laura. I'm a body confidence and plus size fashion influencer. I was also on the Bake Off. You were? Why didn't you tell anybody? <laughs> and I'm Laura's best friend, Lauren. And we're going to be talking about everything from diet culture to dating, mental health to social media, and generally not caring about what people think. We've got new episodes out every Tuesday. Just search Go Love Yourself in your podcast app. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So your final letter would be to somebody who doesn't know what an effect they've had on your life. So who would that be? Oh, my gosh. I, this is a really, really hard one to choose because I sort of went through and I thought Iggy Pop, the musician who has does not realize. Great choice. No, 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 no. But when I'm down, I need to lift up. I put on Lust for Life and I jump around the house like a mad thing. He can lift my spirit. That song, he can lift my spirit anytime. And I thought, actually... But then I then thought, as I said to you, Stan Lee with all his Marvel comic books, because he doesn't realize that actually Stan Lee managed to change society through comics and cartoons in a way that I don't think you could in any other genre or literature. And the whole idea of fighting for justice. And I thought I'd really want him to be in any film I ever made. I want Stan Lee back. But then I thought, actually, let's be. Mm, and then I had to pick a woman. <laughs> and I decided it was going to be Maya Angelou. Okay, that's a good, that is a good show. But first of all, I'm going to say, <laughs> I was not expecting you to say Stan Lee, but my husband, if he was in this room now, he would totally agree with you. Like, he is like a comic book fanatic. Oh, my God. So, I, I mean, I, I always was. And, the, you know, I, I run investments in, you know, it's my sort of day job. You know, the thing, the worst thing I ever did, because when we were growing up, I've got three brothers and myself, we had all these comics. We gave them away. Can you imagine? I, who thought that Marvel films would ever come around again? And I would have been sitting on a gold mine. <laughs> we gave them all away. 
You, I mean, that is not a prudent financial decision no, that you have made. It there. wasn't. <laughs> uh, I do like, yeah, I like the idea about teaching people about justice and truth. And then, of course, the sort of watchman spin on that about how if we had those people in real life, they might actually be like monstrous yeah. um, and all powerful and, well, and yeah, dangerous. You're right, though, that it's made, you know, the idea of good and bad told in a, in a way that is actually appealing to children, not saccharine, is good. Well, he made women superheroes. You're, you're talking 1950s and also like Black Panther, he made, you know, he made people of colour as well, superheroes. He made Daredevil blind person. So he actually broke down quite a lot of barriers without people realising that that's what he was doing. Because he was, he, was, he was actually, I mean, I believe he, he actually studied philosophy, which is an extraordinary thing <laughs> what he ended up doing. But, you know, it, it, he was very complex and I just think incredibly intelligent as well as... All the superhero comics. We can have an honourable mention for Stanley. <laughs> so, uh, Maya. Maya Angelou, what a woman. She was extraordinary. Um, and I think for me, she was my inspiration for understanding the power of words and the way you could use language and words to change hearts and minds and the grace of which she did, but the talent and the sheer determination. I mean... Literally, that's what she taught me. And every time I read and I think about the artistry in which she used language, it's an extraordinarily powerful thing. Is she, she weaponized language, but in a positive way, rather than the usual way of people using language in a negative, weaponizing it for hurt and hate. She did it for compassion and love and inspiration and to lift people up. It was extraordinary. Her talents were extraordinary. Also, she had one of the best voices Oh, I know. All of the world. And as somebody who has a deep voice, I would like to say thank you to Maya Angelou for also having a deep husky voice. I mean, she was she was she was just so fabulous in so many ways. And all the things she went through in her life at her time. And she just never, ever gave up. And, you know, Rise is one of my favorite poems. And it just, you know, she you will never grind me down in the dirt. You know, she she just had she knew how to hit hard, but with the softest of words. Yeah, I, funnily enough, she helped me recently, uh, obviously not in person for many reasons. I'm dealing with a young woman who was sexually assaulted from the age of 10 and she's now 20, but is still awaiting trial, which is taking five years so far. She's been awaiting her trial. Um, and I, when I speak to her, I notice that uh, each and every time I've been speaking to her, it's getting slightly better now. But she gets quieter and quieter and quieter. And I listened to a thing about Maya Angelou talking about being an elective mute and learning to speak again. And the idea was that she just she just got quieter and quieter and quieter um, because of the traumas that she'd suffered. And I thought, and listening to this thing, I thought, oh, gosh, like, you know, this is going to help me deal with this woman who's just disappearing, literally retracting and going, becoming silenced by traumas that have suffered, she'd suffered, you know, this, and Maya Angelou's voice talking to me on the radio in my car. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to help me. So she, she is, um, she has a lesson for all the ages of womanhood, I would say, Maya Angelou. No, I mean, yeah, I, I think however old or young you are, I think to actually, as you say, not just read her works, but listen to her reading her own works is pretty amazing, actually.
Yeah, it's totally. I'm really glad there are lots of recordings of her. That's, you know, it's one of the good things about sort of modern... The, the, the other person that her recordings, but not as many, you couldn't get, is actually Billie Holiday, because Billie Holiday went through so much trauma herself. Oh, dreadful. Um, I mean, awful. And everyone knows her music, but if you listen to her talk, and I wish there was more recordings of her, because when she speaks, it reminds me, she's a, sort of like a, you know, she was almost an earlier version of Maya Angelou. And, and you know, these are women who suffered the most extraordinary challenges and yet they came out with such beautiful words and songs and poems and books and inspirations you think how did that beauty come out of that it's quite extraordinary that is the brilliance of and often I would say women's trauma is to keep surviving and survival looks different to everybody some people you know you might not you might still live with abuse for the rest of your life but the fact that you get up every single day to me looks like survival and people are amazing at what they can tolerate but yeah Maya Angelou and Billie Holiday you know you sort of balk at the idea of what especially in the times that they had they to, lived it, this it, is they thing. lived because yes. people were not particularly kind about it and people would have judged them for all sorts of reasons oh no I mean I mean I think we see it through the lens of today but to see their lives that they, they were living in the bravery they were they were expressing at the time in which they were living is almost incomprehensible for you know two black women it's it's absolutely extraordinary just uh, and the fact that they achieved anything you know to even today as a woman you have to work twice as hard to achieve the same let alone how hard you have to work to rise above as a black woman still today times it again by another 10 for how that you have to do it so just imagine the fact that we know who they are and that they're famous and they're famous for being brilliant imagine how hard they would have had to work <laughs> to achieve that in the times that they achieved it. It's, that's actually unfathomable to me, that level of work that they must have put in. It is. I'd say as a woman of colour, you know, what I, literally I wake up every day and I'm, I've got two balls around my ankles. One is my ethnicity and the other one is my gender. And you're literally dragging that around with you every day. And they would have had it on their back as well. So, I mean, they literally were being weighed down every single day. They tried to stand up and speak out. How would you say, I mean, you're very brave writing a letter to Maya Angelou. <laughs> nobody, I mean, do you know what I mean? It's like nobody can write a letter better than Maya Angelou. I know, I know, I know. I, don't, I just Imposter say. Imposter syndrome. I know, the that's order. exactly how I'd feel. But, you know, I'd probably say something like, we'll never meet, but you fill my heart up whenever it's empty. You've taught me the power of words that they can heal as well as hurt. In admiration. Gina Miller. Well, Gina, it has been, as I expected, a total pleasure. Thank you for your honesty and openness. And thanks very much for coming to speak to me. It's always a great pleasure to speak to you, Jess. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips. This April, I'm going on tour to talk about my book, The Life of an MP. I'll be going to Birmingham, London, Oxford, Oswestry, Street and Brighton. Visit the links in the description to get your tickets. If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you follow Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips on the podcast provider of your choice. And why not write a letter to your friends telling them all about this podcast? You could also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod. Goodbye.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.